0: Cash and Ann Godbold served for decades in the Sahara Desert as missionaries amongst the fierce nomadic tribe of Tuareg people. And when I met them about 20 years ago, just a year into my own walk of faith with Jesus, they had so many astounding stories to share. I mean, just the environment alone was amazing. Being in the middle of a desert in the equivalent of tent camping and not just going out for a few weeks like we would tend to do, but taking along the whole family for decades. It was amazing for me to see just their life of faith and their radical commitment to the gospel of Jesus. But they had other fun stories too, like about how they built a cart that they attached to a camel, a great example of American inventiveness that the the Tuaregs thought was extremely strange. How Anne used camel butter in her hair to make it look nice. The fact that they would use singing to communicate about Jesus rather than speaking. Because if they uttered just two words about Jesus, they would get cut off immediately. But if they sang, the people would beg them to continue. And then on the darker side, they told a story about somebody from the Tuareg tribe who murdered someone who dared to tell him to get in the back of a line rather than cutting to the front of it. It was astounding just to hear about their faith and the ministry that they had, but the most astounding thing I heard was that they were in ministry there in the Sahara Desert of Africa for 24 years before they ever baptized somebody in the name of Jesus. I mean, 24 years. At the time that I heard that, I had lived three years less than that. 24 years is 288 months. I mean, how could you engage in anything for that amount of time without tangible results, without losing hope? How could you not get frustrated and just give up by that point? How could you keep going in such a situation of futility? How did they not experience a crisis of faith in wondering why God wasn't showing up when they were diligently serving him, doing what he'd called them to do, but yet had nothing to show for it? as we continue our journey with the nation of Israel as they have come out of Egypt in the book of Exodus here we saw last week really the ugliest moment as they journey on their way to the land that God has promised to them for centuries Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai to get the law of God God's standard his self-revelation of who he is and his holiness and the people in their impatience begin to lose hope as moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights and so they come to aaron moses's brother and co-leader and ask him to fashion for them a god and so moses aaron complies he tells them to bring all their jewelry he melts it down puts it into a mold and produces this golden calf and says here israel is the god who led you out of egypt and the people worship and Moses comes down the mountain and he's appalled at the rebellion against God and what God has instructed them. I mean, so much of what we've seen in the book of Exodus is how to rightly worship God. And they've gone the exact opposite direction here. They've, go, they've resorted to something familiar to them, this golden calf image that probably was something that was worshipped in Egypt. And they've abandoned what they've learned about who God is. And part of it's because they were relying on Moses entirely to communicate to them who God was. And when he disappeared, well, in their minds, God disappeared as well. Well, it gets even worse as as Moses scolds them for this. There are some people who don't want to be scolded. And so there's armed conflict and 3,000 Israelites die because of this whole debacle, this whole failed leadership moment for Aaron. And so things look pretty ugly as we come here to Exodus 33 this week. The plan of the promised land is in jeopardy. I mean, how is Israel going to recover from this moment? Let's look at it here in Exodus 33 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And so the good news here, as we look at this first section, as Moses takes counsel once again with God after this disastrous moment, is that the original plan is in effect. God is still going to lead them into the promised land and clear the way before them. But there's one big caveat, and that's that God says, I will not go up among you. And rightly so, the people mourn when they hear this. It's disastrous news because they understand that God's presence is life. They understand that all their hope rests in God's presence. They've seen him with them along the journey here he's appeared to them in in a pillar of fire and cloud and he's kept the egyptians bloodthirsty as they were when they were following egypt or israel out of egypt he's kept them apart and then they've seen that same pillar lead them through the wilderness this area where they have no idea where they're going and and we'll see in in our chapters today that this pillar of cloud meets at the tent of meeting with them. And so they're very familiar with God's presence and they understand how important it is to them. They understand that hope rests in the presence of God, but hope also requires obedience. And their lack of obedience here has resulted in their being cast away from God because of God's Holiness, God can't be in their presence when they are rebellious like this, when they are disobedient like this, and they dishonor him with his disobedience. If he were to be in their presence, then he would have to destroy him, because, destroy them because that's what his holiness requires of him. And so, rightly so, the people mourn and their mourning leads them to contrition, to repentance, and they make a change in how they behave. They put aside this jewelry, and it sounds like there's never to be any more jewelry out amongst them, that they've they've abandoned that material that went into making this golden calf. And so as we look at this whole scenario, and, and we look at just the silliness of this situation, these people that would fashion this golden calf and say, here's our God and he's the one who led us out of Egypt when, when it's so obvious to us that that's not true. We need to pause for a moment and recognize that we're cut from the same cloth. We do ridiculous things of our own. We rebel against God. We show our weakness in so many other ways as a human race. I mean, we, we may not worship idols, but we turn to things like alcohol and drugs to provide relief for us. We engage in promiscuous sex or look at pornography in order to fill the deep longing that's inside of us. And as believers in Jesus, we sometimes just keep our heads down and kind of keep a low profile, stay anonymous, wherever we live, work, study, and play, because we don't want to go on record for Jesus. That has too much risk. It might cause some offense or it might require us to live up to the high standard that Jesus calls of his followers. So we do silly things. We do ridiculous things. They just look different. But the good news is that God doesn't leave us in our ridiculousness. He doesn't leave us in our silliness. No, he calls us out, and he calls us to something better. And so when sin is the issue, repentance is the first step toward restored hope. Repentance is the first step toward restored hope. And when the people change their hearts, they change their behavior, now God is free to work among them. And the same is true for us. When we get aligned back right with God, well, now he's free to work with us. And we can hear from him again and follow along obediently. And so with Israel's changed heart, Moses now asks God, to reconsider his absence from the people. Let's look at it in verse 12 of chapter 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So did you see it there? Did you see in verse 14, this instance of the Lord changing his mind? He's going to give them rest, and he's going to go with them into the promised land. Now, of course, God isn't changing his mind. What's taking place is that he's responding to Israel's response to him. When Israel's heart changes... Well, now God can respond to them in a different way. When Israel's stubborn, when they're rebellious, God has to judge them. He can't be amongst them. But now when they're repentant, when they're willing to obey him, well, yes, he can be among them. So he hasn't really changed his mind. He's just changing the way he's interacting with them because of how they're they're changed behavior. And if you look at this and you think, wow, that's some bold language from Moses, I agree. And this is the freedom that we have in a right relationship with God is that we can speak boldly to him. The reason Moses can do that is because he knows God and he has a high view of God. He knows that God is not like the other gods. Yahweh is not like these so-called gods that are made out of metal or wood or stone. He's a God who is living and active. They have experienced him moving in their midst. He is going with them on this journey. And he fights for them like they saw at the Red Sea crossing. He also keeps his promises and Moses knows that. He has seen God be faithful throughout decades uh, in this uh, episode of bringing Israel out of Egypt. So his questioning of God, his bold language indicates Moses' deep hope in God and, and his joy and delight in the character of God and, and him questioning, him telling God, God, you said you were going to do this. It glorifies God because it's Moses worshiping and saying, God, you're good. So act in a good way. It shows that he trusts him, and it glorifies God. And so God is glorified when we ask him to restore our hope, when we believe that what he said is true and that he can bring it to pass, and we ask him to do it. It's us endorsing what God has said and agreeing with him and looking forward to it eagerly. Well, the reason that Moses has that kind of hope is because he knows God in an intimate, personal, close relationship And we can see that here in 33, seven Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So we see this dynamic, dependent relationship that Moses has with Yahweh, just based on these regular check-ins, just this kind of continual relationship and uh, just this two-way interaction that they have. And it would be easy for us in the way that Moses, uh, as we believe the author of Exodus, writes all this, he's kind of the center of the attention. And so it would be easy for us to think that he is exceptional and unique and that this kind of relationship is just something for Moses. But that's not the case at all. This is the kind of relationship that God intends for every single one of us, every person, not just church people, but everyone in the world. And so he brings Joshua along in this kind of relationship to pass it on to him. He mentors him or disciples him in what it looks like to have this kind of relationship with Yahweh we see that Joshua's just kind of lurking in the background throughout this whole narrative. He gets to go up on Mount Sinai with Moses, although he's not the one having the interaction necessarily. He's there and he sees it. He's here in the tent of meeting and he sticks around after Moses goes away. And so he gets this front front row view to how Moses is relating to God and how God is relating to Moses. And in verse seven, we also see that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. So it's obvious that there is access for everybody, that God intends for everybody to have this kind of relationship with him. But the question is, would they put in the work to do it? Would they stop what they're doing, stop the urgency of the day, and go out, make the effort to go out and meet with God? Would they, as they encounter troubles and issues in the course of their day, would they consider God to care enough about those things and him to be able to deal with those things, to address those things in a meaningful way? And would they overcome their fear that they have of God, the, the same fear that has made them choose Moses and tell him, you be the one who talks to God on our behalf? Would they overcome their complacency where they would say, well, we don't, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We're good. They need to put in the work and the effort in order to meet with God they can't rely on Moses they can't um, just rely on things to just kind of fall into place sure they're they're reverent for God or reverent for Moses as he goes out to the tent of meeting they stop what they're doing and they worship when Moses goes out there that's a good start right reverence for God but to mature in relationship with God we need to move beyond respect to love we have to move from knowing about god to knowing god see we can't have a second hand faith we can't live our spiritual lives on the coattails of somebody else you can't you can't rely on a saintly grandmother that you had or a committed spouse you can't continually ask people to pray for you without ever talking to god on your own you can't let the extent of your knowledge about the bible and theology be what you hear other teachers who have put in the work of study themselves without your own studying, without having a personal encounter with God yourself. And we can't limit our disciple making to merely inviting people to a church service and relying on pastors and ministry leaders to do the work of explaining who Jesus is. No, it's, it's our job and it's our privilege as people being formed into the image of Jesus to reveal him wherever we are, wherever we live, work, study and play. That's the privilege we've been given and and only you can reveal God in the unique way that he's designed you to do. It's amazing how this works and it all comes from us having a deep abiding relationship with the Lord. Well, so as All of these events take place here. Israel changes their heart toward God and toward what he's commanded them. Moses has asked God to go up with them. He and Joshua are relating closely to the Lord. In chapter 34, we see that God puts the whole plan back into motion now he tells Moses to cut two new tablets and to come up the mountain and he spends another 40 days and 40 nights there and he inscribes the law on the tablets and in 3410 we see that God is going to reestablish his covenant the mosaic covenant with the people it's not a unilateral covenant there are responsibilities on both sides Israel will have to live up to their end of the bargain and God will bless them when they do those things but it's as though God just takes all of these previous failings and just crosses them out and drops in a new scenario for, for all of this stuff. They're just going to start over here. And so it's this beautiful thing as we relate to God that because of his grace, we have this opportunity when we mess up that we can get right with him again and we can restore that relationship again. That It's not over when we mess up. And so restored relationship leads to restored hope. That we don't have to give up on hope. We don't have to assume that hope is lost because a relationship has been damaged. Restored relationship leads to restored hope. And as we go through this cycle that here on earth and in our mortal bodies we're going to struggle with, of messing up, of sin, of doing things against God's will, of doing things that hurt other people, But then repenting, recognizing what we've done, trying to make things right, trusting in God in those scenarios, asking for forgiveness, apologizing, and then getting right in our relationship with God and with the people we've hurt. As we go through that cycle, we continually deepen in relationship. But each time, God doesn't just bring us back to square one. No, we get to know even more the depth of our sin and the, the need that we have for the abundant grace, which will cover a multitude of sins. And ideally, as we go through this process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus, we will sin less and we'll do it in ways that cause less damage. But there is grace continually, and we realize that that grace never runs out the more we mess up. And as we continue to persevere in Jesus through that cycle, through that deepening relationship, well, we can see some miraculous things as we're changed into the image of Jesus. At the end of chapter 33, there's this amazing passage where Moses gets to see the glory of God. And I don't want you to miss out on it. So I encourage you take a look at it later on today or later this week. And uh, just enjoy the glory of God that Moses gets to enjoy as he's in this close relationship with him. But we'll look at 3429 here at another pretty cool scenario. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses. And behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining." and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him so Moses's deepening relationship with Yahweh results in this noticeable change that the people around him can see and tell that he has been with the Lord like we read in the old in the new testament that people could tell that the disciples had been with Jesus. There is a tangible, noticeable difference in Moses. And, and it's actually a little scary. It's a little daunting for the people. But it also has this effect of making Moses' words a little bit more weighty to the people and, and creating some intrigue. and they also become familiar with it. And in a sense, it's helping them to become familiar with God's glory, this thing that at first might be a little fearsome, but once you get to know him, you realize there's so much more beyond that, that he's so good. Um, And so the important thing for us to recognize here is that we all should glow with the glory of Jesus, just like this. Jesus is the new Moses. He brings us out of a a slavery to sin just like Moses brought Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and Jesus himself shined in the presence of God during the transfiguration and we now as his disciples are called to be like him and, and to be conformed to his image and so we are to shine we are the light of the world as he was the light of the world and so as we live out and people see our joy our love our faith our peacemaking our hope, they should recognize that these things come from God and and those are all some things that the world needs a little bit more of. And it's all here abundantly in God. That's the reason we hope in Him is because of all these good things that He's changing us for the better for His glory and we get to reveal Him. Well, if you think back to the Godbolts, the missionaries in the Sahara Desert, you know, the, the real... The tragedy of that story is not that it took 24 years for them to see this no- noticeable fruit. And incidentally, after 24 years, you know, in terms of baptism, people willing to stand up and identify with Jesus, the floodgates opened. I mean, there was just this radical transformation amongst the Tuareg people. But the Godbolds never really lost heart in the midst of all this because they knew that God was working. They had been s- sowing seed throughout all this time. They had been doing things that demonstrated the love and the truth of Jesus to the Tuareg people. And meanwhile, they were learning valuable things like the thing about singing that helped them to become more effective in demonstrating who God was and we just have to think about the witness that 24 years of following these people around, these, these awkward Americans who have really no place amongst a nomadic tribe in the desert, but following these people around so faithfully year after year, day after day, that's an amazing witness that had an impact on these people eventually. And so the tragedy, the problem in all of this, the the perception of lost hope was all about my immaturity as a one-year-old believer. And sure, I coming to faith later in life like I did, I had an understanding of what it means to die to oneself and to live in Jesus, in that it's not, we're, we don't follow Jesus because of all the good things, and it's not going to be some easy thing. There are going to be challenges in life, but it was not about the data point. Of baptisms, it was not about this one single kind of result, and that was a, a lack of maturity on my part i didn 't have the decades of faith in hard spots in one of the hardest places in the world amongst one of the hardest people groups amongst the world, like the Godbolds did, to be able to recognize that God is here working. And there is not any lost hope. Hope is living and it's alive and we're just waiting to see how God is going to burst forth on the scene in a miraculous way when he chooses to glorify himself here. We are going to mess up in life and as we continue to follow Israel along, Israel's going to mess up. In fact, most of Israel isn't going to make it. There are some who will do the right thing, who will who will continually seek God and rest in his grace. but. As we go through life, as we go through these cycles of messing up and and pressing back into God and making things right and having restored relationship with him, we can trust that not all hope is lost because God uses those moments of our weakness as opportunities to demonstrate his glory and to take us deeper into our faith in him. And as we do so, we recognize that lost hope can be restored. God, we thank you that you have given Jesus for all people throughout all the world and that he has paid for our sin, that your holiness demands payment because of the things we do wrong. But we don't have to suffer that punishment because Jesus suffered it himself when he died on the cross. And and he rose again to new life. And so now we have this opportunity to be called as your people and to go out into the world and to shine with the bright light, love of Jesus, of your truth. And so God, I pray that you would help us to shine brightly. And I pray that we would have a profound impact here in our city and throughout the world because we know you and we love you and we worship you. And people can see that. It's a noticeable difference and it is attractive to them and calls them to faith in you, Lord God. We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.